Welcome to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, March 6th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Prairie High offers pathway training for future nurses. Grant Wood, AEA, also launches healthcare apprenticeship for 1.2 million Iowa Workforce Development Grant. This is by Grace King out of Cedar Rapids. Triana Hare Williamson is training toward a certified nursing assistant license at Prairie High School's new medical career pathway. Her Williamson, 17, a senior at Prairie High, wants to be a travel nurse someday, taking temporary nursing positions in high-need areas so she can travel. The medical career pathway means her Williamson can be one step closer to her career goals and graduate with a certified nursing assistant. When she goes to college at Georgia Southern University, where she was accepted last month, she can work in health care while finishing her nursing degree. The certified nursing assistant course began being offered at Prairie High for the first time in January. While a similar program is offered through Kirkwood Community College, having the class at Prairie High during the school day removes barriers for some students interested in the program. Her Williamson said she doesn't drive and it would be a challenge for her to get to Kirkwood to take classes. Alicia Jones, 18, also a senior at Prairie High, said she wasn't able to take certified nursing assistant classes at Kirkwood because it conflicted with Prairie's band practice. Prairie High senior Rayana Adram, 17, didn't know Kirkwood classes were an option for earning her certified nursing assistant license, she said. The certified nursing assistant classroom at Prairie High has two patient beds, one with a mannequin for students to practice basic care needs like bathing a patient in bed, shampooing and conditioning their hair, nail care, brushing their teeth, and feeding a patient. Last week, the students had a potluck and practiced feeding each other. Jones brought in pudding cups, and Ajram brought in McDonald's hamburgers. It's a really good idea to practice on each other to get that real-life reaction, Her Williamson said. The class is taught by Prairie High school nurses Mary Beth Neal and Jackie Martin. There are no prerequisites to enroll in Prairie's medical career pathway, but Martin said she could see the program expanding to include classes in anatomy and medical terminology. Martin, who started as a school nurse at Prairie High last year, said she was interested in the position in part because of the opportunity to teach students. The need for health care workers is unreal, Martin said. They will be able to find a job with very little trouble. People as young as 16 years old can earn their certified nursing assistant license. In class, students get the required 30 hours of lecture and 25 hours of lab before completing 30 hours of clinical rotations with real patients at Colonial Manor, a retirement community in Amana. Later this year, they will take the Iowa Certified Nursing Assistant Test to get their license, and the school will have a pinning ceremony signifying completion of the program and initiation into the healthcare profession. Healthcare Apprenticeship Programs in Eastern Iowa Schools Another opportunity for Eastern Iowa students to earn their Certified Nursing Assistance License is through Grant Wood Area Education Agency's new Apprenticeship Program. The Area Education Agency received a $1.2 million grant from Iowa Workforce Development to create the program and help address the health care workforce shortage. Students will complete the program of study during their junior and senior years in high school. The program includes online coursework that can be completed at their home school and experience in a certified lab at Kirkwood Regional Centers. Jen Boyd, future Ready Curriculum Consultant with Grant Wood, said there is a huge workforce crisis right now in Iowa. 
This opportunity helps students get started in their careers and healthcare partners who are struggling to fill open positions, she said. To complete the apprenticeship, students work 2,000 hours, getting paid a starting wage of at least $9 an hour. They earn their certified nursing assistant license their junior year of high school, work full-time with an employer over the summer, and work part-time during their senior year of high school. The program is estimated to increase the number of certified nursing assistants by about 30 to 40 each year. Grantwood Chief Administrator John Spear said in a news release, The grant funding will initially support 11 districts in the region, including Albernet, Belle Plaine, Benton, Clear Creek Amana, Centerpoint Urbana, Cedar Rapids, Marion, Solon, Vinton Shellsburg, Washington, West Branch, and Williamsburg school districts. Currently, there are 15 students in the apprenticeship program from eight school districts. Tina Eden, director of nursing at Virginia Gay Hospital in Vinton, is working with two students in an apprenticeship. We've seen over the years our patients are sicker and require more intensive care and longer stays. We need the employees to take care of them, Eden said. In rural Iowa, with our critical access hospitals, it's very difficult to fill those positions. Our next story is, would hate crime charges apply in stabbing? Experts say facts known in Walker's death don't fit murder hate crime charges. This is by Trish Mahaffey out of Cedar Rapids. Some residents are questioning why the man arrested in connection with the fatal stabbing of Devonna Walker was not charged with murder or a hate crime. But legal experts interviewed by the Gazette said the facts of the case, as presented in the criminal complaint, don't fit either of those charges. Shane Teslick, 37, of Cedar Rapids, faces charges of voluntary manslaughter, a felony, and disorderly conduct, epithets, threatening gesture, a simple misdemeanor, in the January 2nd stabbing death of Walker, 29, outside Teslick's home in northeast Cedar Rapids. A coalition of activist groups had been protesting and demanding murder and hate crime charges be filed in Walker's slaying. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks said he based the charges against Teslick on the facts of the case and the applicable law. Teslick, who is white, had called Walker, who is black, an abusive racial slur before she charged at him, pushing Teslick's wife to the ground, then striking Teslick twice in the face before he stabbed her. In the criminal complaint, Maybanks said Teslick knew or reasonably should have known the racial epithet would provoke a violent response from Walker because Walker had previously assaulted Teslick's wife and the defendant during a verbal argument on December 19, 2022, and Walker was known to be a violent person. According to court records, Walker had convictions for assault causing bodily injury and assault of a peace officer in 2021. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Richard Murphy said last week that in order to charge a federal hate crime, a prosecutor would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Walker was stabbed because she was black, not because she was attacking a man and his wife, as the complaint states. The motivating factor has to be a person's actual or perceived race, color, or national origin in order to meet the higher standard of a hate crime, Murphy said. A prosecutor would have to prove the deadly assault wouldn't have happened but for the fact of Walker's race. Murphy said it comes down to the question of whether Teslick stabbed Walker because she was black. But the facts of the case seem to indicate Teslick's reaction seems to be a knee-jerk reaction to Walker lunging at and punching him, Murphy said. Cedar Rapids police referred the case to the FBI for consideration of a hate crime charge, but the FBI turned it down because what happened didn't meet the federal criteria. 
Murphy said not many cases in the federal northern district of Iowa meet hate crime criteria. Assistant U.S. Attorney Tony Morfitt said he prosecuted a hate crime case in 2016 and another prosecutor had one in 1997. Both involved crimes in Dubuque. Morfitt prosecuted Randy Joe Metcalf, excuse me, Randy Joe Metcalf, 40 at the time, for a hate crime of causing bodily injury, injury to Lamar Sandridge, 31, of Dubuque, based on his race. Trial testimony showed Metcalf stomped and kicked Sandridge in the head multiple times during a fight at the Northside Bar in Dubuque on June 12, 2015. Morfitt was found guilty, the first conviction on a hate crime in the Northern District, which is the northern half of Iowa. The hate crime statute is fairly new, but there were some convictions under a similar law involving cross burnings in Dubuque in 1997. During Metcalf's trial, the owner of the bar testified Metcalf had shown him his swastika tattoo and talked about participating in those cross burnings before the brawl started. Metcalf was sentenced to the maximum prison term of 10 years in prison. There is no state law that applies to a hate crime that results in homicide. A charge does exist for an assault resulting in bodily injury, Chapter 708.2c, which carries a five-year prison term. Murphy said the facts of the January 2nd assault seem to meet the elements of voluntary manslaughter. According to Iowa law, voluntary manslaughter is when a person acts on a sudden, violent, and irresistible passion as a result of being provoked and not being able to regain control and suppress the impulse to kill. You want to charge a case you can prove, Murphy said. This isn't an easy case. Robert Rigg, a professor of criminal law at Drake University in Des Moines, agreed. He said he understood why it might have taken some time for the county attorney's office to make charging decision because of the nuances in the case with the potential for self-defense arguments. At this point in time, I would guess the prosecutor probably chose the highest charge he thought he could prove beyond a reasonable doubt, Rigg said. You have a situation that's obviously racially charged, so as a prosecutor, you're going to want to go through and take your time, make sure you cross all your T's and dot all your I's before you do anything because no matter what you do, it's going to be controversial. The main elements of a first-degree murder charge are premeditation, deliberation, and specific intent to kill with malice aforethought. In this case, Walker attacked Teslick and his wife before Teslick stabbed her, so it would be difficult to prove that her death was deliberate and premeditated, Riggs said. According to the criminal complaint, Teslick had previously told Walker he would kill her if she came near his home or family after she had assaulted him and his wife in December. Riggs said that as a defense lawyer, he would be concerned about that statement, but proving premeditation could still be difficult, depending on when the previous assault happened and other factors. Our next story. Hundreds at Iowa State Capitol protest LGBTQ-focused bills. Democratic lawmakers, teachers, organizers, and students speak at rally. This is by Caleb McCullough out of Des Moines. Evan Hugel is worried about his future in Iowa. Hugel joined hundreds of Iowans on Sunday to protest a surge of legislation that state lawmakers are considering this year that targets LGBTQ Iowans and topics in schools, bills he said will negatively affect him. A transgender sophomore at Ankeny High School, Hugel said he faces bullying in school and lack of acceptance from some family members. But proposals to ban gender-affirming care for minors, Senate Study Bill 1197 and House Study Bill 214, and restrict LGBTQ topics and students in other ways will make things even harder. 
I'm going to stand up and fight this because I don't want to live the rest of my school years in misery, he said. I don't want to live the rest of my life in misery. This seriously impacts my future, how I'm going to grow up being a trans guy. The recent increase in bills focused on LGBTQ issues in Iowa has made it hard for Hugel to see a future in Iowa. He was considering going to college at the University of Iowa or Iowa State University, but now he's having second thoughts. Now I'm having to look at colleges out of state and be far away from my family just so that I can be who I am, Hugel said, which I am not looking forward to. Several hundred people crowded the west steps of the Iowa State Capitol to protest LGBTQ-related bills lawmakers are considering this year. They held signs that said, Trans people belong in Iowa, and referenced the state's motto, Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. They flew rainbow and trans pride flags. Democratic lawmakers, teachers, LGBTQ organizers, and students who spoke at the rally said the bills being advanced by the state's Republican majority contradict the notions of freedom and liberty the Republican Party champions in other areas. Real liberty is the ability to read what you want, said Amy Wichtendahl, a Hiawatha City Council member and transgender woman. Real liberty is having control over your own body. Real liberty is the ability to marry the person you love. Lawmakers have advanced bills out of committees this year banning gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors, prohibiting instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in early grades, requiring school employees to notify parents if they believe a child is transgender, and requiring students to use only bathrooms that align with their biological sex. Republicans supporting the bills said they are a reaction to concerns brought by constituents and parents, and they give parents more input in their child's education. On the bill to ban gender-affirming care for minors, House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican from New Hartford, said last week the lawmakers are taking a cautious approach to the issue. That's despite advice from medical experts last month to keep health care options in place for transgender youth. Part of why we are here where we are today is I was surprised to find out that some of our major health care providers in the state are actually doing this when we inquired about it, Grassley said. So we feel very strongly about our position that we're taking on this issue. Teachers and education advocates said at the rally the bills that deal with LGBTQ issues in education are censorship and restrict the ability of teachers to be a trusted resource for their students. Under a bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds, any school employee would need to notify parents if a student expresses a gender identity different from their biological sex, and schools would need parents' permission to refer to a student by a different name or set of pronouns. Republicans have said the provisions would give parents information about important decisions their child is making, but some teachers said the bill could put students in harm's way if their parents do not accept them. They prevent educators from fulfilling our important societal role of being trusted, safe adults for all students, said Stacy Schmidt, a teacher and chair of the Iowa State Education Association's LGBTQ plus task force. We are often the first adults that young people go to ask questions about any number of topics. A group of students who organized a statewide school walkout last week spoke at the rally, saying they plan to continue to oppose the legislation. The Iowa Queer Students Alliance is hosting another rally at the Capitol on Wednesday, the group said. We have shown up time after time, and we're not going away, said Emma Mitchell, the group's founder. 
Here's our next story. Researchers think tiny wasp can stop spread of ash borers. It's too late for older ash trees, but there may be hope for ones just starting to grow. By Patrick Scahill from the Connecticut Public Radio. How do you find an insect the size of your fingertip in a densely packed forest? For Jean Duan, the answer is simple. Follow the dead ash trees. On a rainy day in eastern Connecticut, Duan, a federal research entomologist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, walked to a dying ash covered with holes. Peeling back the bark with a draw knife, he revealed a mess of serpentine tunnels. Curled up inside was one of his targets, a larva of emerald ash borer. Let's collect it, Duan said, gesturing as his assistant handed him a pair of tweezers tied to a brightly colored ribbon. In case you're wondering, the ribbon makes the tweezers easy to spot when they're dropped on the leaf-covered ground. But today, Duan isn't just collecting emerald ash borers. He's also looking for its predator, one released here on purpose in 2019 and 2020, a wasp known as Spathius gallinae. It's from the Russian Far East, Duan said, smiling. Unfortunately, there are no common names for these parasitic wasps. The stingless wasp is tiny, about the size of a mosquito, but scientists have big hopes for it. In Russian forests, this wasp naturally targets its, excuse me, targets and attacks emerald ash borer. Emerald ash borer in its native range, Northeast Asia, does not kill trees like this, Duan said. And if this experiment works, the borers won't kill as many trees here either. A biological solution. Solutions like this known as biological control are one way scientists can deal with biological problems like the invasive emerald ash borer. Right now, there are experiments across New England to see if the wasps can help save the region's ash trees. Connecticut and Massachusetts began using the biocontrol agents in 2013. Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont are doing similar experiments. Claire Rutledge, with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, says when emerald ash borer feeds on trees, it cuts off key nutrient pathways. For ash trees, that's death by a thousand cuts. One larva is not a big deal. Twenty larvae are not a big deal. Two thousand larvae kill the tree, Rutledge said. Since it was first It was first detected in Michigan in 2002. Emerald ash borer has killed tens of millions of ash trees. Federal officials estimate it has cost municipalities, nursery operators, and the forest product industry tens of millions of dollars. The massive die-off of ash trees has also disrupted the making of culturally important products like baskets and baseball bats. Duan said the idea of biocontrol is to find the natural predators of the introduced pest and bring them to the new environment to slow the pest spread. Because in the native range, these natural enemies co-evolved with the pest, Duan said. Shortly after emerald ash borers arrived in the U.S., DNA testing traced its origin to Northeast Asia. Duan traveled to Russia, trekking through cold forests to collect wasps that only prey on the borers. Samples were brought to America, quarantined, and carefully tested for years to ensure the wasps wouldn't kill any other non-target species. Now that some of these wasps have been living in the forests of Connecticut and Massachusetts for about 10 years, scientists are trying to find out if the intervention is working. Cautious optimism. As Dwan and his assistant peel more bark and pull more larvae from the dying tree in Connecticut, they still can't find the Russian wasp or two other species that were introduced here. So they decided to cut down the tree to study it further. They cut the wood into meter-long segments and continue looking. 
Rutledge said it's too late for the wasp to stop the massive wave of borers that's killing older ash trees, but there is hope for the younger trees that are just starting to grow. When regeneration starts to happen after the EAB levels drop, the the parasitoids will be able to keep those populations down so that the new ash can grow and escape, Rutledge said. On this old ash tree, they found a few emerald ash borer larvae and no wasps. But they did find parasitoids just a few miles away at another site they're studying. And as recently as last year, Rutledge said they found reproducing populations of wasps initially introduced in 2013. So she said it's looking like success. The wasps are sticking around and spreading. I'm really cautiously optimistic, Rutledge said. The problem with biocontrol is it's going to be 10 or 15 years later when we see how much of a resurgence the ash manages. Even then, she said, it's going to be a long time before we see big, healthy ash trees in New England forests again. Our next story headline is, Iowa decertifies ex-water worker for falsifying city's test results. No evidence that the falsifications in Marshalltown resulted in unsafe drinking water. By Jared Strong. This is out of Marshalltown. A former Marshalltown Waterworks employee was recently decertified by the state as a water treatment operator because he falsified test results of the city's drinking water, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. There is no evidence that the falsifications resulted in residents drinking unsafe water, state and local officials said. Mark Gilarski worked for Marshalltown's municipal drinking water source for a little more than two years, from June 2020 to October 2022, said Shelley Lovell, general manager of Marshalltown Waterworks. The utility serves more than 27,000 people, according to state records. Lovell declined to comment on the specifics of Galarski's departure. But Janet Gastonow of the DNR said Galarski and another employee were fired for falsifying the results. The other employee, Dylan Collins, worked for Marshalltown Waterworks from November 2021 to September 2022, Lovell said. Both employees worked a night shift. Gastonow said the falsifications were discovered when the workers of a subsequent shift found that their test results were notably different than what would have been expected from the test results from a previous shift. State records did not indicate what those tests were meant to detect. The state requires drinking water suppliers to monitor their water for a variety of contaminants, along with chemicals they use to disinfect the water. Gastonow said there is a pending DNR investigation into the other employee. Customer safety wasn't ever at risk, Lovell said. The city conducts tests of its water at a higher frequency than what is required by the state, in part because the treatment facility is staffed day and night, and because of that, the safety of the water was not imperiled, Gastonow said. And here's an article from the Nation World section titled, In Selma, Biden Says Right to Vote Remains Under Assault. It's from the Associated Press out of Selma, Alabama. President Joe Biden used the searing memories of Selma's Bloody Sunday to recommit to a cornerstone of democracy, lionizing a seminal moment from the civil rights movement at a time when he was has been unable to push enhanced voting protections through Congress, and a conservative Supreme Court has undermined a landmark voting law. Selma is a reckoning. The right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible, Biden told a crowd of several thousand people seated on one side of the historic Edmund Pettus Bridge, named for a reputed Ku Klux Klan leader. This fundamental right remains under assault. The conservative 
Supreme Court has gutted the Voting Rights Act over the years. Since the 2020 election, a wave of states and dozens and dozens of anti-voting laws fueled by the big lie and the election deniers now elected to office, he said. As a candidate in 2020, Biden promised to pursue sweeping legislation to bolster protection of voting rights. His 2021 legislation, named after civil rights leader John Lewis, included provisions to restrict partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts, strike down hurdles to voting, and bring transparency to a campaign finance system that allows wealthy donors to bankroll political causes anonymously. It passed the then-controlled I'm sorry, it passed the then-Democratic-controlled House, but it failed to draw the 60 votes needed to advance in a Senate under control by Biden's party. With Republicans now running of the House, passage of such legislation is highly unlikely. We know we must get the votes in Congress, Biden said, but there seems no viable path right now. The visit to Selma was a chance for Biden to speak directly to the current generation of civil rights activists. Many feel let down because of the lack of progress on voting rights, and they are eager to see his administration keep the issue in the spotlight. Few moments have had as lasting importance to the civil rights movement as what happened on March 7, 1965, in Selma and in the weeks that followed. Some 600 peaceful protesters, led by Lewis and fellow activist Hosea Williams, had gathered that day just weeks after the fatal shooting of a young black man, Jimmy Lee Jackson, by an Alabama trooper. Lewis and the others were brutally beaten by Alabama troopers and sheriff's deputies as they tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge at the start of what was supposed to be a 54-mile walk to the state capitol in Montgomery as part of a larger effort to register black voters in the South. On this bridge, blood was given to help redeem the soul of America, Biden said. Days later, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. led the Turnaround Tuesday march in which marchers approached a wall of police at the bridge and prayed before turning back. President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced the Voting Rights Act of 1965 eight days after Bloody Sunday, calling Selma one of those rare moments in American history where history and fate meet at a single time. Five months later, Johnson signed the bill into law. Among those sharing the stage with Biden before the march across the bridge were the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Martin Luther King III, and the Reverend Al Sharpton, On the bridge crossing, marchers sang, This little light of mine, and we shall overcome. And following tradition, once they reached the point where Lewis and others were told in 1958 that they were on an unlawful march, they stopped and prayed. Okay, and now we're going to turn to the opinion section and read the community letters. Look to children for courage. Many use the word courage when someone has performed an act of bravery or a dangerous deed, which is true at times. But recently, some of the most courageous people have been at our state's capital. And no, I am not speaking of our state's elected leaders. Far from it. I'm speaking to the young people who know Iowa should be a welcoming place, who have shown up time and again in front of powerful adults in committee hearings who are writing legislation to erase their existence and tell them all the ways they are wrong and don't fit neatly into the label male or female. Courage looks like a 12-year-old begging to keep books on the shelf so they can see themselves represented in writing like their straight peers. Kids are courageously showing up and speaking truth to power to the 21 anti-LGBTQ bills proposed here in Iowa. While the adults in power want to divide us and hide behind hateful rhetoric from dark money groups like Moms for Liberty and Advancing American Freedom. Imagine the Iowa we could have if our Republican lawmakers had courage the courage to stand up for what is right for all kids, the courage to protect our LGBTQ kids, 
and the courage to do right by our public schools. Let's hope that those in Des Moines working on this legislation can muster up an ounce of the courage these young people have and vote no on these hateful and harmful anti-LGBTQ bills. That was from Amy Adams out of St. Lucas. The next letter is Don't Kill Cedar Rapids Speed Cameras. It seems our Iowa GOP legislature can't stop looking for ways to make us less safe, whether it's writing crazy gun laws or moving state park rangers out of their on-park housing. Now they're back on an old favorite cause, traffic cameras. If they can't ban the cameras, they can try to legislate them into ineffectiveness. If you don't think speeding is a problem, you probably never get out on our streets and roads, or you just choose to deny the obvious. CRPD Chief German has provided facts and figures to lawmakers which show the effectiveness of the cameras in saving lives. The proposed legislation in HF 173 could prevent the city from installing speed and red light cameras in places where they're needed, such as Collins Road and Highway 151, unless state-approved. And do you believe that's going to happen? The February 16th Gazette article mentioned that the amount of civil fine would be limited. That's true. The amount couldn't exceed 5% of the scheduled fine. The cameras do bring in a lot of money, especially given the generous 11-mile-per-hour allowance over the speed limit. This should be looked at as an indication of the magnitude of the problem. A significant fine is the only deterrent to speeding and red-light violations. There aren't enough police officers to provide needed coverage, and there are many times and places where traffic stops cannot be safely made. Cameras are the only effective measure to combat the problem. And that letter was from Jerry Chilton out of Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, Give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Dorothy A. Evans, Cedar Rapids. Live every day to the fullest. This was Dorothy's life motto, which she accomplished with gusto. Dorothy was born in Cedar Rapids on December 6, 1927. She died peacefully in Cedar Rapids on March 4th. She lived in Cedar Rapids for most of her life, except for a few years during World War II when she lived in Long Beach, California. She met her future husband, Alva, while attending Long Beach Poly High School. She moved back to Iowa and attended the University of Iowa, graduating with a B.S. in chemistry in 1949. She later would earn an M.A. in education from Iowa in 1968. She taught elementary school in the Cedar Rapids School District for 27 years at Knoll Ridge, Pierce, and Polk Elementary Schools. She was a lifelong advocate for learning, education, and children. Dorothy was a member of and served on many organizations, including Retired Teachers Association, PEO Chapter LI, Iowa Accordion Club, Lynn County Foster Care Review Board, Chi Omega, Delta Kappa Gamma, Pi Delta Kappa, St. Paul's United Methodist Church, Book Club, Hesperians, BMV 613 U.S. Marine Corps Reunion Group, Mr. Bean's Knitting Circle, Elections Poll Worker, Focus Preschool Volunteer, among others. She was an avid knitter and knitted over 500 sets of newborn cap and booties for Mercy Hospital. She never missed a vote in public election. In 
She loved her sweets, especially kolaches and ice cream. Czech was her native language, learning to speak English when she entered kindergarten. She was proud of her Czech heritage. While still driving, she loved to drive by the schools at which her granddaughters taught to see if they were with students at outdoor recess. She kept track of the number of college degrees earned by her family, most of which she helped finance. Family was first for Dorothy. Dorothy is survived by her daughter, Chris Evan Schwartz, spouse Alan, and son, Eric R. Evans, spouse Cheryl. She had three favorite grandchildren, Adam Evan Schwartz, spouse Sarah, Aaron Evan Schwartz, and Sarah Mayer, spouse Ben. She was also survived by six great-grandchildren, Sam Evan Schwartz, Noah Evan Schwartz, Shava Evan Schwartz, Aria Evan Schwartz, Charlie Mayer, and Evan Mayer, also surviving our nieces, Kathy Sarby and Sharon Hutt. She was preceded in death by her husband, Alva A. Evans, Jr., parents Edward and Ann Svacek, sister Marlene Loltz, and brothers-in-law William Loltz and David Evans. Contributions in Dorothy's name may be directed to Cedar Rapids Schools Foundation, St. Paul's United Methodist Church, or Cedar Rapids Public Library Foundation. In honor of Dorothy, please hug a child today, help, and be kind to others. Cherish and support all children. Learn from your mistakes. Commit yourself to education and learning. Love and live every day to the fullest. Service will be at 11 a.m. Thursday, March 9th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Wednesday, March 8th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Inurment is at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Robert Starkey J. Gibney Stark, 89, of Cedar Rapids, died Wednesday, February 22nd at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. Funeral Mass will be at 10 a.m. Friday, March 10th, at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids by the Rev. Dennis Miller. Burial will be at St. Joseph Cemetery, Stark Settlement. Vigil will be held at 3.30 p.m. Thursday, March 9th, at Tehan Funeral Home, where friends may visit with the family from 4 to 7 p.m. Bob is survived by his dog, Finn, nephews Steve, spouse Sandy Gibney of Van Horn, Wayne, Spouse Carmen Gibney of Atkins, Donald, spouse Sandy Gibney of Anamosa, Lynn Gibney of Indianapolis, and David, spouse Anne Gibney of El Cater, niece Linda Williams of Atlanta, Georgia, sister in law Mary Alice Gibney of Norway, lifelong friend Lori, spouse Jerry Corrigan of Atkins, and numerous great nieces and great nephews. He was preceded in death by his wife of 29 years, Sarah. His dogs, the boys, Seagram, Fagan, Dugan, birth parents and adoptive parents, sister, Leota Louise, spouse Jack, Getz, brothers, James, spouse Germaine, Gibney, Ambrose Gibney, and niece, Gigi Getz. Bob was born on February 11, 1934, in Watkins, son of James and Florence Smith Gibney. Upon the sudden passing of his mother when he was an infant, he was adopted by George and Louise Schmidt Stark. He attended Atkins Consolidated School, graduated from Atkins High School in 1952, and attended Coe College. Bob also served in the Army, receiving an honorable discharge. On July 1, 1993, he married Sarah Porter at St. Patrick Catholic Church. 
Bob was an expediter for Collins Radio from 1954 to 1969. He went on to successfully own and operate the Stadium Lounge, the Inn, and currently, since 1984, the Westside Lounge. He was a devoted member of St. Patrick Catholic Church, the American Legion Post 170, Blairstown, and the Knights of Columbus. In the 1950s and 1960s, he was very athletic and pitched baseball and played basketball for Atkins High School and several baseball town league teams in the Atkins, Vinton, Norway, and Watkins area. Often when Bob was playing the town team leagues, he found himself playing against his Gibney cousins, Bill, Larry, Dean, and Mike. He was also a player for the M&J, Manufacturers and Jobbers, in Cedar Rapids and the Iowa Valley League. According to Bob, he and his buddies, with the aid of a Coonrod truck, held the first St. Patrick's Day parade in Cedar Rapids. After a few blocks of merriment downtown, the Cedar Rapids Police Department ushered the merrymakers and truck back to the bar. Bob enjoyed providing guidance to people who were less fortunate and socializing at the bar. If there was a little gambling on the side, he was even happier. Bob loved to make people happy, and likewise, he was loved by many people. Special thanks to all of his many loyal customers who brought him happiness and laughter every day. As Starkey always said, keep the lamp lit. Memorials may be directed to the family for an established memorial fund. Online condolences can be left at tandfuneralhome.com. Charles Chuck Deshaw, 67, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Friday, March 3rd, at his home following an extended illness. Visitation will take place from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Friday, March 10th, at St. Luke Catholic Church, Hopkinton. Massive Christian burial will be held at 11 a.m. with Father Paul Baldwin officiating. A private family interment will take place in the Hopkinton Cemetery. Getch Funeral Home has taken Chuck and his family into their care. By visiting getchonline.com, you may share your thoughts and memories and condolences with Chuck's family and sign the online guest book. Chuck is survived by his children, Jessica, spouse Gary, Belle, Kara, spouse Tom, Howe, and Alan Deshaw. His grandchildren, Lila, Adelaide, Connor, Declan, and Emerson. His siblings, Doug, spouse Barb Deshaw, Charlene, spouse Scott Smith, and Carrie, spouse Rick Wolf, and his beloved guard dog, Stitches. He was preceded in death by his parents. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Camp Wapsie Y to celebrate his love for the outdoors. Chuck was born to Dwayne Jr. and Luella Weber Deshaw on March 29, 1955, in Monticello, Iowa. He graduated from a Cocoa Valley school where he said all the smart people went to school. He was a very talented carpenter that built many houses, including his parents' home in Hopkinton, and an elaborate Barbie dollhouse for his, da- for his daughters and later granddaughters, with an oak spindle staircase and electricity. He taught his son Alan everything he knew to carry on his carpentry legacy. Chuck lived an adventurous life with multiple near-death experiences. He loved loud music, playing pranks, playing pool, and enjoying life, canoeing on the Wapsie River. Mary Ellen Edwards, 88, of Iowa City, died at the Solon Nursing Care Center in the early afternoon of March 3rd. Funeral services will be held at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City on Thursday, March 9th at 2 p.m., with visitation to be held prior to the service from 1 to 2 p.m. Burial will be at Oakland Cemetery in Iowa City. Join her family for a reception following the burial at the Kirkwood Room. In lieu of flowers, the family suggests memorials be made to Iowa City Hospice. 
Mary Ellen was born on July 29, 1934, at Mercy Hospital in Iowa City to Francis and Doris Burfield, Grace, of Tiffin, Iowa. She graduated from City High in Iowa City in 1953. Mary Ellen then attended the Mercy Hospital School of Nursing in Iowa City, graduating in 1956. From 1956 to 1972, she worked as a surgical nurse at Mercy Hospital in Iowa City. Mary Ellen then worked from 1972 until her retirement in 1998 as a nurse in the periodontics department at the University of Iowa College of Dentistry. On September 24, 1956, Mary Ellen married Robert Bob Edwards at St. Mary's in Iowa City. She and Bob had three sons, Jeffrey, Stephen, and Mark. Mary Ellen enjoyed camping and taking vacations with her family. She had spent many years as an active member of St. Mary's Catholic Church in Iowa City, where she was on the parish council and belonged to the Altar and Rosary Society. She enjoyed lunch dates with her friends from the Red Hat Society, meeting at Panera's in the mornings for coffee, and playing cards at Cosgrove. Mary Ellen is survived by her sons Jeff, spouse Rita, of Iowa City, Stephen, spouse Kathy, of O'Fallon, Missouri, and Mark, spouse Kathy, of Morrisville, North Carolina. Step-granddaughters Katie, spouse Jared Stephan, and children Owen, Liam, and Amelia of Iowa City, and Kara Rector, and children Maggie and Max of Iowa City. Brother Bob Grace, nieces Sue Hartzler and Liz Litwiller, nephew Willie Chalmers, and cousin Mary Henderson. Mary Ellen was preceded in death by her husband Bob, parents Francis and Doris Burfield Grace, brother Bill Grace, sister Julia Chalmers, and nephew John Grace. The Edwards family would like to thank all the staff at the Solon Nursing Care Center for their kind and compassionate care of their mother over her final years. Online condolences may be shared with her family at lensingfuneral.com. Daniel Eugene McGivern, loving husband, father, papa, and brother, passed away on March 1st at the age of 72. He was from Iowa City. Massive Christian burial will be celebrated at 10 a.m. Saturday, March 11th at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Iowa City. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 10th at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation to the Dan McGivern Memorial Fund to benefit patient families and nurses of the Cardiovascular Intensive Care Unit at UIHC via Midwest One Bank. Dan is survived by his wife, Cludie, his four children, Melissa, Jeff Sanko, Michael, William, and Mary, Michael, Maggie Radisky, and Holden, Sean, Aaliyah Adeguemi, and Brian, Julia Rhodes, eight siblings and numerous nieces and nephews. Dan was preceded in death by his parents, Betty and Michael McGivern, parents-in-law, Evelyn and James Condren, and brother, Jack McGivern. To his extended family, Dan was an exceptional role model who led a life with an abundance of purpose, service, humor, and love. The pride that radiated from Dan when he talked about his children and grandchildren inspired those listening to do and be their best for their own future. The complete obituary and online condolences may be shared at lensingfuneral.com. Samuel Ray Schweitzer, was finally reunited with the love of his life, Verna Schweitzer, on March 2nd. He was from Independence. Samuel lived a happy life, died peacefully in his sleep at Lexington Estates in Independence. Samuel will always be known as Papa Sam. 
He loved his granddaughter, Alexis, with his whole heart. She was his pride and joy. He was a devoted papa and father. He loved fishing, eating ice cream, and watching his westerns. Rest in peace, Marine. A celebration of life for Samuel will be held at 1 to 3 p.m. Sunday, March 12th, at the Independence VFW, 128 3rd Avenue, Northeast, Independence, Iowa. Kenneth Wayne Tichow of Cedar Rapids was 90. He passed away on Friday, March 3rd at Hiawatha Care Center in Hiawatha. A celebration of life will be held 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 14th at Murdoch Funeral Home in Marion. Inurement with military honors will be held at a later date at Springdale Friends Cemetery, Cedar County, Iowa. Kenneth Ken was born May 30, 1932, near Tipton, son of Elmer and Helen Gerber Tekau. He grew up in Tipton and joined the U.S. Navy in 1951, serving on the USS Renshaw in Japan, Korea, Midway, and Hawaii during the Korean conflict with an honorable discharge in 1955. On March 10, 1956, he married Beverly Maxson in Springdale, Iowa, and to this marriage, son Kevin and daughter Lisa were born. He went on to graduate with a Bachelor of Science from Upper Iowa University in 1961. Ken worked 26 years for the Social Security Administration, working in Des Moines, Mason City, Omaha, and Dubuque, concluding in Cedar Rapids, where he served as Assistant District and District Office Manager for 17 years until he retired in 1987. He was widowed in 1978 when Bev died, and he married Jacqueline Hegwood in 1988. Ken and Jackie lived in Reno, Nevada, and Gilbert, Arizona. Jackie died in 2001, and Ken returned to live in Marion. Ken was an enthusiastic community supporter and was greatly involved in civic affairs. He served two years, I'm sorry, two terms on the Marion Independent School Board and one term on the Marion City Council. He was very active in Lions as a longtime member of the Marion Noon Lions Club, as well as Lions Clubs in Reno and Gilbert. Ken received the Warren Coleman Honorary Award and was a Melvin Jones Fellow. He belonged to American Legion Post 298 out of Marion. Locally, he was a longtime volunteer at Usher's Ferry Historic Village, St. Luke's Hospital, and Habitat for Humanity, and also volunteered at food banks in Reno and Gilbert. Ken was a tremendous role model for his children and grandchildren, a good man with a big heart. He found great joy spending time with his family. He taught his children the value of education, how to balance a career and home life, the importance of service to others, the need to have fun and laugh, and the joy of travel. Ken had a passion for sports and attended as many of his grandchildren's sporting events as possible and cheered on the Iowa Hawkeyes. He will be missed dearly, but his legacy will live on through his family, friends, and all who he touched. Ken is survived and lovingly remembered by his son Kevin, spouse Stephanie Tichow of Cedar Rapids, daughter Lisa, spouse Patrick Welsh of Cedar Rapids, grandchildren Maxon and Grace Tichow, Jenna, spouse Cody Jandick, and Sean Welsh, great-grandchildren Griffin and Brecken Jandick, sister Linda Rassavong of Cedar Falls, brother-in-law Ed Kusher of Waterloo, sister-in-law Pat Small of California, and numerous nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, Elmer and Helen, brother Jack Tichow, sisters Nancy Tichow and Donna Kusher, and wives Beverly Tichow and Jackie Tichow. Memorials in Ken's memory may be directed to the Iowa Lions Eye Bank Fund. Please share a memory of Ken at murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. Mary Ellen Nury, 87, 
uh, Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully at home on Friday, March 3rd. She was of the Methwick community. A rosary will begin at 4 p.m. Tuesday, March 7th, followed by visitation from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services in Cedar Rapids. Funeral Mass is at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 8th, at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids, followed by a burial at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Cedar Rapids, with a luncheon following at St. Patrick Parish Center. Survivors include her daughter, Mary, spouse Carl Peters of Fulton, Maryland, a son, Mark Nury of Marion, and two grandchildren, Alyssa Peters of Laurel, Maryland, and Alexandra Peters of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Mary Ellen was born on February 18, 1936, in East Amana, the daughter of Henry and Emma Blechschmidt Bondorf. She graduated from Amana High School in 1953 and attended Iowa State Teachers College. After graduation, Mary Ellen taught at Cleveland Elementary in Cedar Rapids. On July 4, 1959, she was united in marriage to Thomas Nury of Cedar Rapids, who was in the U.S. Air Force. They spent the next few years in Lincoln, Nebraska, Bermuda, and Omaha, Nebraska. Following Tom's honorable discharge, they moved to Cedar Falls, Iowa, where Tom attended the University of Northern Iowa, and Mary Ellen continued her education, earning a master's degree. She then taught in Cedar Falls, the Home Start Program, and Waterloo, Iowa. After Tom retired from John Deere and Mary Ellen from teaching in 1994, they moved to Amana, and in 2017, they moved to the Methwick community in Cedar Rapids. Mary Ellen enjoyed spending time with her family and friends. She was a member of St. Patrick Catholic Church and was a fan of the Chicago Cubs, Iowa Hawkeyes, and motorsports. She loved singing in the choir, reading, and doing crossword puzzles in the morning paper. She was preceded in death by her parents and her husband, Thomas. Flowers are suggested for services or donations to the Greater Iowa Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. The family extends a special thank you to her many friends at Methwick. Ronnie Bob Cook, 77, of Marion, passed on Thursday, March 2nd. A visitation will be held at 4 to 6 p.m. Friday, March 10th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 11th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of the Memories by Pastor William King of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Burial will take place at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. A live stream of the funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website under the obituary for Ronnie Cook under the video tab, starting at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 11th. Ron was born February 27. I'm sorry, February 22nd, 1946 in Algona, Iowa, the son of Chester and Geraldine Sorensen Cook. He graduated from Spencer High School in 1966. Ron started his career working for the Cedar Rapids school systems in 1968. In 1980, Ron went to work for Iowa National Insurance Company for seven years. He retired from Grantwood Area Education Agency, Superintendent of Building and Grounds, in 2004 after 18 years of service. Ron was married to Vanita Louise Guthrie. They later divorced and remained friends. He then met Cheryl Twachtman, and they married on June 6, 1992. Ron was a past president and treasurer for Local 55 AFL-CIO. He was a past member of Refrigeration Service Engineer Society. He was a member of Good Christian. I'm sorry, he was a member of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Ron was a lifelong Christian, and we will see him again when we meet in heaven. 
Ron enjoyed life and was an avid outdoorsman. He liked fishing, boating, hunting, grilling, and finding the elusive moral mushrooms. He was a certified scuba diver. Ron enjoyed a wide variety of music, playing cards, cracking black walnuts, and cheering on the Iowa Hawkeyes. In Ron's younger years, he raced go-karts and won several trophies. Ron was a car enthusiast and had many types of cars over the years. He owned several classic cars. His latest cars were a yellow smart car and a 1931 Ford Model A. Ron had a great sense of humor. His stories brought joy and laughter to others throughout his life. We will miss his wonderful smile and kind heart. Ron was a good friend and will be greatly missed by everyone who knew him. Ron is survived by his wife Cheryl of 30 years, two brothers Larry Cook and his wife Kay from Spirit Lake, and Jerry Cook from Adel, sister Bonnie Lambertus from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and many nieces, nephews, cousins, and friends. Ron was preceded in death by his parents, brothers Chet Cook Jr. and Dean Cook, and nephew Tommy Cook. Please leave a message for the family on our webpage, theatermemorial.com, under obituaries. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions in Ron's memory may be made to Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Mary K. Casserly Maurer, 84, of Marion, passed away March 4th, surrounded by her family. A vigil service will begin at 4.30 p.m. Wednesday, March 8th, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, with visitation to follow from 5 to 7 p.m., Massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, March 9th at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion. A live stream of the service will be available at youtube.com. Mary was one of five daughters born to Joseph and Alice Koch-Casserly. Mary was a wonderful daughter, mother, sister, grandmother, great-grandmother, but most of all a friend. She will be missed by all who knew her. Mary went to school at Sacred Heart and then later to Boone High School, graduating in 1956. Soon after graduation, she married Maurice Maurer at Sacred Heart Church in Boone. Shortly after their marriage, Maurice and Mary moved to Cedar Rapids to start their life together. Mary and Maurice had four loving children, Pat, spouse Chris Maurer of Marion, Kathy, spouse Brian Young of Wisconsin, Mark, spouse Tammy of Robbins, and Brian's spouse Lori of Nebraska, plus grandchildren, great-grandchildren, bonus members to the family, and numerous nieces and nephews. Mary had various jobs that included Linmar School District, Rockwell Collins, Mercy Ladies Auxiliary. She loved playing bridge, sometimes up to six days a week, in various bridge clubs. She also enjoyed knitting and had a major role of bringing together her classmates for Boone High School reunions. Most of all, she enjoyed being around her family and watching her children grow and become parents themselves. She has been a member of St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Marion. She was preceded in death by her parents, Joe and Alice Casserly, her husband, Maurice Maurer, twin son and daughter, three of her sisters and their husbands, Pat and Dick Shaw, Colleen and Jim, excuse me, Colleen and Dr. Jim Donovan, and Sue and Don Hinman. She was survived by her children and a sister and brother-in-law. Alice, and Dr. Roger Merkin. Those who knew her were truly blessed people, and those who didn't know her missed out on a truly special human being. We keep her memory alive by remembering all the fun and goofy things she did in her lifetime. Her work here on Earth has finished. She's moving on to a better place to see some old friends and family. She will not go on this journey alone. She will be met by the ones who went before her and followed by the ones left behind. Godspeed. 
In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations to Mercy Hospice Care. Please share a memory of Mary at MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. Douglas William Doug Welter, 65, of Vinton, passed away on Wednesday, March 1st at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Graveside services will be held at Garden of Memories Cemetery in Waterloo at a later date. Doug was born April 29, 1957 in Waterloo, the son of Vincent and Anne McDermott Welter. He graduated from Waterloo Columbus High School with the class of 1976. He lived most of his life in Waterloo, moving to Vinton in 2009. He had recently moved to Cedar Rapids in early 2023. In his leisure time, Doug enjoyed taking walks and especially fishing. He is survived by his sister, Michelle, spouse Jeff Matheny, nephew Matt, spouse Stephanie Matheny, Olive Van Horn, great-nephews and niece Tate Kettler, Ashlyn Erger, Caden Erger, Nate Matheny, and Gabe Matheny, as well as his aunts, uncles, and many cousins. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his niece, Tammy Matheny, nephew Tony Olson, and several aunts and uncles. The family would like to thank North Star of Vinton and to the rescue of Cedar Rapids for the assistance and care of Doug throughout the years. Online condolences may be left at phillipsfuneralhomes.com. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.